Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Grammy winner Jason Vio is described by NPR as the most precise and soulful classical guitarist of his generation, and by HuffPost as revitalizing the classical guitar. As a soloist and chamber musician for festivals like San Francisco Performances, Ravinia, Amsterdam's Concertgebouw, Soul Arts Center, Shanghai Concert Hall, and featured soloist with the orchestras of Cleveland, Toronto, Houston, Nashville, and more, Jason is considered one of the world's leading classical guitarists. Jason just released Bach Volume 2, Works for Violin, on Azica Records to critical acclaim, and Shining Night with violinist Anakiko Myers was released in May. He recently recorded Pat Metheny's Four Paths of Light on Metheny's 2021 album Road to the Sun and won a Grammy in 2015 for Best Classical Instrumental Solo for his album Play. Jason was the recipient of the Guitar Foundation of America International Guitar Competition First Prize and holds faculty positions at Curtis and Cleveland Institutes of Music. Jason, it's so awesome to have you on One Symphony today. I wanted to ask you how you got started as a musician. Was it more by ear? I know you have a lot of experience with music of all genres. Was it more by ear or was it more traditional classical training? Well, thank you for having me on the show, Devin. It's great to be here. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think initially I probably knocked around on the guitar by ear. My mother bought me a guitar when I was five, and it just so happened that it was a kind of a two-thirds size or three-quarter size classical guitar. And I don't think that my either of my parents really knew there was such a thing as classical guitar or that there was, say, a classical repertoire for it. So for a couple of years there, I was basically playing things by ear. And then the Buffalo Guitar Quartet, I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, and, and the Buffalo Guitar Quartet came to my school. And that's where my mother was working at that time as a secretary. And so they gave this, you know, kind of like an outreach performance uh, and uh, in our in our cafeteria. And I would have probably just listened and watched that performance and went to my classes and maybe maybe mentioned it to my mother had she been at home. But since she was there, she uh, was proactive about going up to the members of the quartet and asking if any of them gave private lessons. And so I started lessons that summer with Jeremy Sparks, and that was like right around my eighth birthday, either right before it or right after. So is that a common, I know like with violin, it's kind of like four to five sometimes, and even with yeah. piano, is that kind of common with classical guitar as well? Like that essential age range to start? I think back then it was probably unusual because at that time we didn't have Suzuki guitar. There's no European style conservatory system in, in the United States, certainly not at that time. 
perhaps now, you know, like let's say if the Colburn School in Los Angeles wanted to start something and have people starting very young, they could do that. But, you know, no, I mean, really not in the state in the States at that time. It wasn't really until the development of, say, for example, the, the conservatory system in China, those players often start at four or five years old. But back in 1980, 81, that wasn't really something you really heard about. So it was it was kind of early for most classical guitarists. Most classical guitarists around that time came to it from rock and roll or from jazz or blues. You know, the, a lot of the stories you hear is like, I heard a Segovia record or I heard a Julian Bream record. And I said, I've got to try. I've got to see what's going on there. Right. So since my teacher was a member of a classical guitar ensemble and Jeremy Sparks was a really, you know, very like a proper musician too, like a very, very um, literate, you know, could write, could arrange. Uh, he was the primary arranger for the quartet. So not only did I study with somebody that could play and could teach the the technique, the right hand fingers and fingerings and all that kind of thing, but we also played within a couple of years, we were playing duos together in the lessons. So I got kind of like an early chamber music training from him as well. So you also said that earlier in life, you kind of looked at a lot of like rock music or, or pop musicians as a little bit easy. Like it's something that like <laughs> you made the leap uh, essentially directly to the classical guitar because presumably that was more of a challenge. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think my, as a teenager, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, there was probably a period where I kind of thought there was a bit of an identity, you know, kids at that age, you know, you have a, a kind of an identity and mine wasn't, you know, since I wasn't playing soccer anymore, I had basically stopped playing sports because I didn't want to, you know, hurt my hands or break my fingers or anything. And by the time I was 12 and, and so 13, 14, maybe that was it. I was, it was a little bit of like a badge of honor, like, oh, you know what? What Eddie Van Halen is doing isn't all that hard and da 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 and this kind of thing. Because really, you know, in order to play uh, the, the, some of the repertoire I was already playing by then, concert concert pieces like Variations on a Theme of Mozart by Fernando Sor or Recuerdos del Alhambra by Targa and these kind of things. Like my classmates didn't know anything about that stuff, right? So it, it was probably my way of you know, communicating to them if they were curious about it or they would get, they would ask too. Like I'd play in a school assembly or talent sort of thing. I'd play like the grand overture by Giuliani. And they were like, Whoa. And I was like, like, and then can you, and then of course it's like, can you play this? Can yeah. you play, you know, grateful dad? Can you play Led Zeppelin? And I would be like, yeah, that stuff is like, you know, I was like, yeah, that stuff is pretty easy yeah. compared to, compared to what I'm practicing. So yeah, but it wasn't anything of like, you know, it was probably, there was probably a little bit of me that I wanted to impress my, my uh, friends at school too. Thank you. 
So you talked about Jeremy Sparks as sort of being this consummate mu- musician, and I know that you also compose music. You have uh, all this experience in music with very different styles. You teach, yeah. uh, you play music on guitar that was written for other instruments. And I'd love to just kind of get into Johann Sebastian Bach because yeah. you have this incredible new Bach Volume 2 album that was just released. You. Uh, can you kind of talk about that continuation, you know, that lineage of, um, and Bach didn't play the guitar, but he played the violin very well, but it's known that he also loved to play these partitas on the piano and the suites on the harpsichord. Can you kind of talk about that 400 years of, of history of, of performing music like this as a performer, but also as a composer and as a, as a teacher as Bach was? Wow. Okay. Well, I'll try to I'll do my best with that. As far as the other styles, I mean, I basically grew up around rock, soul, R&B, some funk music. I had a copy of Sly and the Family Stone fresh album from 1973. So like when I was five, six years old, I was listening to some pretty, pretty great stuff on that end of things. And then my dad's record collection was entirely jazz. The way the transcriptions come about just to kind of cover that topic is that the sound of jazz, the sound of R&B, sound of soul and that kind of thing is kind of, it's, it's very close to me because those are my earliest musical experiences, really. Classical music, of course, I learned to play through the guitar. So the language of the Baroque era, the language of the classical era was, you know, I learned, I learned basically the classical, the language of classical era music, Mozart era music through Fernando Sor and Mauro Giuliani. With Bach, I was probably, I was starting my first Bach pieces when I was probably about 11. Uh, and there were two movements from the third cello suite. And the guitar's history in terms of repertoire goes all the way back to the, the to the Renaissance. Actually, its earliest ancestor is the vihuela, uh, which was a four uh, four coursed guitar. And when I say coarse, meaning it was doubled strings, so four doubled strings, so the pitches are doubled, and so it had eight strings, but really only four. You're really playing on four string guitar, basically. And so the music from that, there's some really wonderful music from that period. And then, we, of course, we have its cousin, the lute, from the Renaissance. Now, then, as that those two instruments developed, the lute became, of course, a lot more. The vihuela kind of graduated, if you will, uh, you know, more or less, into a baroque guitar. And while there's a lot of there's a lot of original, of course, material written for the the solo bar- baroque guitar. For me, I mean, just being able to play music of the quality of Bach is really special. And so I just, I, fa- I, I always favor the transcriptions that we can do by Scarlatti or, or Handel or, or, or Bach or even Telemann and that sort of thing. So the Bach and the Bach lute suites and now the violin sonatas and certainly the cello suites have long been, for a long time now, been kind of a staple of the guitar's repertoire because they they really require a certain amount of technical ability. Uh, just to play the notes is one thing, but then to actually get across the detail of the polyphony on a guitar is extremely difficult. And you came back to Bach because you have Bach Volume 1 about 13 years ago or so. Yeah. Uh, and Bach is sort of the father of everything we do in classical music and, and non-classical music in many ways. And for me, the the most incredible thing about him is is his he wasn't writing in the sense that his music is going to be played for generations. He was just writing to he had a church gig and it was a yeah. it was a civic there was a civic duty as well. So he wrote dances and then the the fugues for for the church and dances for the pub. 
And he wasn't thinking about, well, well when is this gonna, music going to be played for the future? And that's why the, the, there's not much markings. The additions are hard to really find what he actually intended because he just wrote oh. down enough for him and his musicians to be able to play it. And, you know, it was discovered by Mendelssohn in the 1800s. And then, you know, Pablo Casals discovered the cello suites in the 1900s. And, and I'm just sort of curious from your standpoint as a, as a all-star globetrotting guitar soloist, um, why keep coming back to this music? And, you know, what does Bach have to say in 2022? Well, I mean, it's, well, his music is complete, is absolutely timeless, first of all. I mean, I just think the music itself is, has everything that music needs in order to function on all levels. I mean, it's, it's the, it's got terrific rhythm. It's always melodic, of course. And that part of that is the style of music that they were writing in, the, the style of polyphony where things function together and hang together as harmony, but each line, you know, actually is melody, melody unto itself on its own and great structure, you know, like great narrative, like great natural musical narrative. There's a night, there's always a nice architecture to things that seem to just make sense. And, and I, I just think that those things are, those are qualities that don't really become dated in, in any way. I mean, that was kind of borne out really, as you suggested, that was a really great actual kind of synopsis of how Bach kind of re-entered the culture in the 20th century too. There was kind of like a Bach revival once it was once it was discovered by more 20th century musicians on different instruments. But Mozart was kind of Mozart at the end of his life. You know the Grosse Fugue, and they are all kind of dealing Schubert. All the great composers of the 19th century were really sort of. It's it's interesting that it was always near the end of their lives that they were really trying to deal with writing in in that style. Uh, and to really make a really make a statement, uh, and to try to master the uh, the, the counterpoint uh, that that Bach, of course, had mastered long before them. wasn't a star like Handel. He was like this kind of provincial composer. So we're very lucky that the music even, you know, got that, got out, you know? Yeah. And, and as you talked about, but Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn, they had access through a lot of their wealthier patrons who kept these music libraries of sacred old music. Um, they had access to this and they, and they used a lot of this, um, a lot of the structures, a lot of the harmonies, uh, and, and the fugues, of mm. course. And I'm curious about the dances. And you know, you know, you mm. said Bach was a very provincial guy, kind of sequestered in northern Germany, as opposed to somebody like Handel, who was a world traveler. But for some reason, Bach was able to assimilate all these great, like in in a suite or in a partita, you have all these different dances that are French, that are Spanish, that are Italian. Um, that he was essentially able to, and I don't know if he heard them or, I mean, cause we know 
Mozart uh, yeah. traveled all over the place, but he was able to kind of make these into the pedestal of, of what we know as, as the Western musical tradition. Can, can you talk about how you interpret dances, you know, and how, when you think of tempo, when you think of style, when you think of, of phrasing, and, and I know you, you have uh, on other recordings, for example, on Shining Night with Anna Kiko Myers, you play this piazzola, the history of tango. And, and I, when I think of tango or, or Spanish or South American dances, they're also related to the dances of the Bach partidas or, or suites. So can you kind of right. maybe talk about hmm. how you interpret that, how you bring those to life and how you put your personal stamp on that? I know what most classical musicians know. In the sense that a saraband, for example, like its origins are actually Mexico and then traveling through Spain. In those days, it was kind of a, a very forbidden or kind of a, a very sensual, like a like too sensual, kind of taboo kind of dance. You know, and then, you, of course, you've got the gig, which is essentially kind of a variant, you know, sort of a more maybe in their hands and ears a bit more of a refined version of the jig. But a lot of cultures have this kind of version of this rounded two beat kind of six, eight, you know, G uh, or jig. And so, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I wish, I wish I was a little bit more well-read in recent years with, in terms of like, you know, the, the information of this, the, where all these things came from. And I've always really just relied on my education as far as my training from say my conservatory training from John Holmquist as a, as a teacher, and then master and a lot of master classes of visiting artists and and also the baroque uh, players like Paul Odette and uh, Nigel North and and kind of picking up things from their master classes and also from their playing. And I you know I did a fair amount of listening to baroque musicians, meaning living baroque musicians like Monica Huggett on the violin. Try to widen my experience as a listener, which I was doing all the time anyway. I mean, really in, in my bachelor degree at, at CIM, I probably listened to as many hours of music a day as I practiced. I probably practiced four hours, three to four hours a day and probably listened to music for three or four hours every day. So obviously, I mean, there's something that's coming from maybe that, from a lot of listening to music, but in the end, I'm really just using my instinct. I, I don't, I, I've not, I've not been the kind of musician uh, to really kind of try to scour like a, a bunch of treatises and, and this kind of thing. I mean, like when I'm doing ornamentation, I just doing some stuff, something that I think sounds pretty good. You know, it's it like, sounds kind of like what I think. And I, and I, I'm not trying to do something any, in any kind of modern way or, or modernize it. You know, I'm hoping that I'm getting at something that is stylistically authentic. And at the same time, I don't really consider myself. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't put myself out there as some kind of expert on it either. But I've also heard from a lot of musicians that play a lot of Baroque music that they really like my ornamentation. Hmm. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm really just kind of doing what I what I think sounds right in the moment. And I, you know, and I have different, you know, uh, variations on the ornamentation that I can do here or there. When I start getting tired of a particular group of them, if I'm playing a concert piece, a piece in concert regularly, then I'll I sort of I've switched them up or, or rotated them in and out and that kind of thing. to try to keep the improvisatory vibe that I think all of those musicians then were really adept at. What my understanding is that probably the best of those musicians were regularly improvising those ornaments, and I'm sure it was pretty easy for Bach to say 
compose a double, a double onto a gavotte or something like that, you know, or, or a minuet or something like that and, and double the rhythm. And it's kind of like a jazz musician sort of blowing over changes in double time of, of like a, you know, over a mid-tempo swing or a ballad, right? Like that's really kind of like the the American modern equivalent would be that that kind of thing of the 20th century. It's it's like you're you're going into double time over over the same changes. You have to have a composerly sense to you. I mean, I when I did that Pat Metheny record, not this last one, the one that, of the piece that he wrote for me in 2005, I did a record entirely of music by Pat Metheny, huh. uh, like solo like a solo guitar record of transcriptions, and but they weren't all straight transcriptions. Like I took five of those pieces and and kind of recast them as Baroque era. Um, uh, dances like a prelude that of course a prelude was last train home by uh, Pat's tune. And then an Alamon was a different tune. And then, and then I wrote a double over a gavotte. I, I, what was that question that his, um, yeah, his, the wall, his jazz waltz time tune question and answer. I basically made it into a kind of a, um, uh, I think I made it into a gavotte and then I wrote this double over this, over the changes and it took, and it didn't take long to do. I just, it's just sort of like, Oh, what would sound cool over these changes? I didn't even really spend very much time laboring over it. So I think that's kind of in, I mean, maybe, maybe in a little bit in that spirit, it's kind of like, Oh, well, this would be fun. It's just, I don't think they were really taking it that all that seriously either. You know, if you, if you have the ability to do it, you're not like, not, not even necessarily like you were, we were suggesting about Bach. He wasn't trying to make any, necessarily you know just because his music is so great doesn't necessarily mean that in his mind he was trying to make these grand pronouncements or great you know or big statements you know he had to crank that stuff out week to week i don't even understand how i mean how he did it it's amazing talk about just talking getting back to pat metheny and and jazz and improvisation i'd love to hear uh, a little bit about how um that collaboration happened i know pat metheny created four paths of light for you specifically 
And, wow. and that's a common trend, you know, over classical music, a lot of big name composers, whether they be uh, Brahms or Tchaikovsky or Dvorak, almost always had a specific soloist in mind when they created yeah. their their masterworks. Can you just talk about that collaboration and sort of the genres and worlds colliding and the language that you used to communicate as you were creating that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I didn't, I mean, he wrote every note, note of okay. it. And the idea was that I think from his perspective, he wanted to actually challenge, he wanted this kind of thing where, where the project or the challenge in front of him was to actually to write something that was basically concert music. Certainly what Pat Metheny is known for is actually having a little bit more composed structures that soloists then have solo space in where they're, where they're playing over changes or they may, there may be a composed uh, head or tune and then the, the piece for say like Pat Metheny group or something like that, or just for like a trio might have like, or a quartet has different sections in it and they're not even, so the solos aren't even blowing over those original changes in the head. They're blowing over some other set of changes. And so he, he had this sense of structure from the, from the get go, right? This kind of almost kind of the, the sense of a composed structure and the ultimate, you know, kind of expression of that for him, I think was probably something like the way up, which is a 66 minute, you know, in one, basically one 66 minute piece that go that's incredibly complex and vast and has all kind of solo space and changes and then things and recurring sections and recurring themes and then things superimposed over each other. So I mean, he definitely has this kind of mind the, the mind to, to be able to do that. This was something though where there is no improvising on Four Paths of Light, the piece he wrote for me whatsoever. And I think for him, the idea was like, I want to write something that's going to really challenge. He, he said, I want something that's going to really challenge you. I can't play it. I'm basically writing it for you, <laughs> writing for you, to, you know. And, and so, yeah, those fir- the first and second, or sorry, the first and third movements are really difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, they're some of the most difficult things I've ever, ever had to learn and play. And now actually coming out of this pandemic, it was, I mean, I premiered it at 92nd Street Y in New York in April, 2021. That was at Kaufman Hall at the Y, but there was no one in the audience, right? It was just like a virtual concert. And so after that, I began to play it here and there, but I'm only really just getting to start start playing it again in solo recitals. So actually this, this whole summer, I'm playing it a lot. I'm playing about five or six times just in like two months. So that's kind of nice. But it needs that. It needs this performance, these performances to kind of get to where you really get comfortable with it. I mean, I usually don't really feel all that comfortable with a piece anyway after 10, 10, 15 run throughs. And this is definitely falls into that category. And do you consider, I mean, we've all gotten used to the virtual performances with the cameras on and nobody in the audience. Do you consider that a, a similar kind of thing? Like, do you, do you feel like that's, that's a performance under your belt or does it feel more like a, like a recording session or something like that? Uh, no, that, no, that first performance was, yeah, no, it's like a, the temperature was running high. Yeah. I mean, I was really <laughs> nervous for it. It was like, I, I, you know, playing that piece for the first time. I mean, I didn't do any overdubs on my, on my recital uh, for, yeah. for the for series, for that series, they allow, they, they allowed the performers, I guess, well, I found out after the fact, they allowed the performers to actually do more than one take, even movements of, yeah. uh, of things. When I, for some reason that never, I never got that memo. And I was like, 
I, I did the first violin sonata, then the Cameron Negro by Brower, and then closed with with Pat's piece, wow. all in like one sitting, just like a regular concert. And so I was, yeah, no, I was like really like my, the adrenaline was really, really flowing for that, wow. you know, for sure. Cause I just assumed that it was like a live thing. And then there's about a thousand people that, that bought the tickets for it. I found out later uh, and it went great. I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for it to go, to go any better. I mean, I really worked hard to get that ready so that it didn't sound like a, you know, it's hard to take a piece that difficult and try to get it to where it doesn't sound like it's a first performance. You know, but I didn't want to disappoint. I didn't want to disappoint Pat, really. I yeah. just didn't. I, you know, I just wanted to try to make it as good as I possibly could, and and that in itself, that first performance, really, in a way, did kind of get it over the hump because then you go, then you know, like especially that third movement, like you know, like okay, I mean, at least I, I I've got a good, I got a pretty good start on it, and then after performance ten. I'm expecting now it's going to go up. You know, I'm expecting it's going to get, you know, like now it's easier to play. Like when I practice it, it's easier to, yeah. I'm just using less pressure in the left hand. I found some little, some little shortcuts in the fingering where I don't have to release uh, a finger or I can, or, or I can put down a finger later than I thought, you know, those are all things on a guitar, especially you, you're never stop discovering those kind of things. I've, I've done the fingerings for the first violin sonata, for example, like three, three different times, the P the prelude fugue allegro 998, probably like five different, five different times. I mean, that's, that's just part of your own growth is you get better as a guitarist and get better as a musician. Like you go, Oh shoot. I didn't see that, that, that detail there in the, in the uh, polyphony. I want to bring that out and I'm going to need this fingering to do it. Right. As opposed to the fingering I played last time. I, I, so I never, I'm, it's, and it's scary to change your fingering like that, you know, and then, then incorporate it in that next recital on stage. But I just think I can't kind of, I sort of can't stop myself from doing that. It would just be weird to play the same fingerings I played of Prelude Feud Allegro uh, 995 that I did in college. Yeah, yeah. I just feel like a train. I would feel like I was just being like a trained monkey or something like that. And then all the stuff I'd be hearing in my head, that's my problem is, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent now, but that's kind of my problem is that I'm, I'm hearing things as I'm learning more about music and growing, I'm hearing things in great detail. And then whatever, you know, it could be just two notes, but if those two notes, it's like, oh no, I should, you could, you could do this. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to change that fingering, you know? And then, and so I did, that's why I feel like my Bach playing is getting better and better. And volume two, hopefully is kind of like a snapshot of like where I am today with, with that. Hmm. You know, I think I said something like that in the liner notes even. And I think that's the great thing about, but not just Bach, but any great piece written at any time in history is that you, you keep, it forces you to change, <laughs> right? Like yes. it, because you keep, because of life experiences you have, you come back to that piece and you have to do something differently. Like it, it would be easy. It would be easy just to repeat, you know, like just to do the same, same bit. Right. I mean, yeah. everybody. And that's, and that's understandable on guitar because it's already so damn hard to play this, this mm -hmm. stuff anyway mm -hmm. on it. So I, it's not like I'm, you know, I totally understand, but I just can't, I can't do it. I, I can't like kind of, it's, it feels like, a, like you, like you're frozen in time and you're going back to something as you were rather than, sort of living where it is with you now. 
Right. That's why you're the Albert Einstein of the guitar world, right? Because Pat Metheny said, if you had Albert <laughs> Einstein, Albert Einstein in your math department, you wouldn't want him to teach eighth grade algebra. <laughs> I love, I love that quote. I mean, that's. I don't think I'm. I, I mean, I think that's an un, uh, unnecessarily nice thing to say about. Well, you play that. the guitar, and Einstein played the violin, right? So there's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> he's like that about Antonio too, like his drummer, like the drummer he played with him for years. He's, he said the same thing about Antonio Sanchez. Okay. Like he's wow. like the Einstein of drum of wow. the drum set, which he totally is. I mean, he's yeah. <laughs> That's an incredible compliment. I would love to hear a little bit about your teaching. You teach at Curtis and Cleveland Institutes of Music, and you're training the next generation of classical musicians who are going to sort of take the the torch. You know, you are clearly a, a, a holistic entrepreneur. You know, you've got a family. You, you you've made your teaching, your composing. You've got this uh, global career. Can you kind of talk about how you balance that overall, and how you impart? Uh, sort of the lessons of learn post pandemic and by your, you know, 30 year career almost um, to the next generation? Well, yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely a process. I mean, it's definitely a learning process. There's sometimes when it's all clicking, right. And it's all working in, in harmony with each other, like family, like, I mean, whenever I'm, again, that's another sort of problem with me. It's like when I'm home, I'm home. You know, like I definitely practice, of course. But if I get like, for example, if I'm home and like, when, because of how much I travel, when I when I'm home, I'm I get up first <laughs> on their school days and I make their lunches and and make their breakfast in the morning and get you know get them up and brushing their teeth and this kind of thing and and I dr- and drive them to school and pick them up and take them to their lesson you know their their piano and guitar lesson and they take uh, dance lessons and they do uh, swim class and stuff like that right so I I try to then take over that kind of stuff because when I'm away my wife is doing all of that you know the that family stuff but also doing that stuff actually really bonds me much more with the kids than it would if I wasn't doing those things and uh, and so we're all very very close actually and I saw so but initially doing that like kind of putting the guitar away for most of the day and then have and then having to partition like a three-hour time to get maybe two and a half hours of practice in that day was like uh, it was it was like a, it was kind of scary for to, for me because you know you you still the concerts are still rolling like you're still doing like when when my son was born those first two years I was doing like 60 70 gigs a year like to me um, you know things of like nine hours eight nine hours of repertoire um, after the Grammy I I think I took I I tried to reduce that just so that I wasn't running you know 
so I wasn't burning the candle at both ends, right? You don't, you don't ever really want to get into a situation with that, with that. So if you have some capital, if you will, you know, to do that, and then I, I try to take advantage of that and not just so that I'm not working all the time. Right. And I, over the pandemic, I also learned that relaxed time, like really time, like time, not doing anything. <clears throat> I, w- I wasn't really sure if I was capable of, of doing that, you know, of actually <laughs> Not 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 doing something that was going to result in some kind of artistic result <laughs> or musical musical result. So like I wrote a bunch of music during that first year, you know, first six months or something like over like an hour of music. And I but that was nice because I play some of that stuff now in my concerts and my solo recitals. But the main thing I got out of that was it definitely made you. It definitely made me reevaluate exactly what am I really, it made me help, it helped me to actually really define, well, what exactly am I doing this for? And that even goes down to the, each contract, like what am, okay. So what is the end game of doing this gig for, for this? Right. Cause you get, you, it's like a blur after a while, like you're just going year after year after year and you don't really, you kind of don't really stop. So then when you're forced to stop, I mean, when the pandemic hit, I lost we, you know, all the concerts or, you know, I like all of us did uh, musicians did. They were, you know, I don't know if I'm trying to remember how long that was for. I mean, it was about six months where I wasn't playing. I didn't really know what to do with myself. Actually. I, I mean, meaning like I started to look at Instagram cause I had someone doing Instagram for me. So I never looked at, I really never looked at it. And so I started to study that kind of thing and I'd see other musicians and they were practicing just to practice. And I was like, gosh, I wish, I, I mean, I, I, I guess that's, that's really, I mean, I was practicing, but I wasn't practicing like four or five hours a day. I didn't have any gigs. I mean, I, I was so trained by that point to prepare things, you know, for public performance. I, I, I've sort of lost, I, I sort of lost myself for a second. It was, I felt like a fish out of water initially. But then it all, then I started to get the hang of it, you know, plus I was dealing with, with my parents kind of stuff too. So that there was a lot of, there was a lot of family things that I had to really actually uh, loose ends and stuff that I had to t- tie up and such with my dad. So, yeah. And can you talk about kind of what your training, I mean, obviously with, with your students, I mean, the, the, the technique, I mean, and, and me and probably you, we spend most of our time in, in school learning the music and the technique and. Yeah, uh, and then when you get into the real world and realize that it's about maybe a little different for a conductor than a solo, uh, you know, musician, um, but it's about fifty-fifty of. I mean, maybe probably more on the developmental side on the audience audience development. How can we how can we creatively craft programs to to bring in the next generation, bring in the people who ha- who don't come to the orchestral concerts? Can you talk about you know what you're what you're imparting to students in that arena? Well, I mean, I think the students are are kind of are doing a pretty good job of that actually on their own. Um, they, I, I noticed that about ten. I would even say more. Well, no, right around ten years ago, because I'm trying. I'm trying to think. Like when it, right around the time I met my wife was 2010. So even like 12 years ago, I started noticing at CIM that kind of students were taking. There were some students that were kind of taking that into their own hands and they were scheduling, they were scheduling concerts at bars, like at pubs and stuff like that. They were just going back. <laughs> yeah. 
Right. They were organizing. They were organizing themselves and and going out into the community and starting like these these small series and playing more house concerts too. Like so, that was already happening. Before, you know, before the pandemic, there was a lot more of these kind of intimate house concerts, which would have been like a salon, right? Like a salon concert in the 19th century, like what Schubert would have had with, with a small group of friends or, or whatnot. So I think that kind of thing is already, that had already shifted pretty, pretty hard. And I think really the students were sort of doing that on their own, maybe in, maybe in some cases with uh, help from, from uh, the instructors, but I mean, for me, my main job, I feel, is really trying to get them in the short time that they have with me as many of the tools musically and technically and performance-wise and professionally, just, just general professionalism, as much, as much as I can to get them before, they, before they're out, out of my studio and you know, out into the world. So, I mean, I've learned, I've learned a lot just by watching them, like actually just watching just, just students and seeing what they're doing. Again, and also... I had a lot of time on my hands to look at Instagram and that was kind of like, Oh, okay. So this, all this stuff is going on. It, I didn't really realize how much stuff was, you know, cause you, again, you're sort of in your own thing of, of you're, you're really in this kind of week to week repertoire practice strategy, you know, you go over the game film from the last concert. How can I improve on this piece or whatever this, this kind of thing? You're in your own zone, right? So there was some more time after during the pandemic to to look at that stuff. Do you use recordings from your previous concerts uh, that that people send you? I mean, do do you always try to get those? And and uh, does anything surprise you still? Yeah, you know, Pat's really speaking of earlier, Pat Matheny. Apparently, he's really good about that stuff. Like he listens to the shows. He he really goes over talking about like talk about game film, right? Like watching the game like a football team watching game film. Apparently he's really good. He's really disciplined about that. I don't enjoy listening to, and he doesn't either. He doesn't enjoy listening to his uh, performances and I don't get any particular enjoyment out of it, but like, but I will to see what that started happening again, like 10, 15 years ago where you had to approve an entire concert for broadcast. That can take for me like two to three hours to because you rewind, you go, oh, oh, and then you're then it's like, oh, and it's kind of depressing. (laughs) It's like, you know, listening to all the things that you know that you could have done better, right? Um, so I had to over the last 15 years, really just by that process of getting of releasing live performances for radio broadcast or television to 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 do that. So I learned a lot <laughs> from uh, from those kind of things, and it's always for the better because if you if you find something that like you you thought you might have been playing pretty well but doesn't sound so good, and and you know it doesn't sound quite as good as you think, it's like oh okay, I may have to reevaluate what, what, how that I'm playing that passage or how I'm actually crafting that passage on stage. Maybe I should take a little bit more time on that passage. You know the whole thing of like I didn't realize I was playing this those, those runs that fast, Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't need to really be playing them that fast. What am I doing? You know, (laughs) stuff like that, you know, is, is kind of going through your mind. So. Yeah. It's amazing how speed sometimes, even, even after doing it for so long, sometimes speed deceives you 
tempo deceives you. It, it, the actual, and I think part of that is the 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 music's ability to to kind of manipulate the space time continuum a little bit. You know? Yeah. Because so, like a, 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 a an eighty minute Mahler symphony goes by when you're performing it in five minutes. I feel like uh, oh, maybe wow. maybe not so. I mean, don't you think? Like if you're doing a Bach. Sweet. I mean, uh, does does that do you do you Not have a so sense? Of, do you even have a sense of time? Right. That I know, I understand what you mean by that because early early in my performing career, it did go by quickly because there was because adrenaline because adrenaline yeah. or nerves definitely definitely has a and way may, and maybe not five minutes i was exaggerating no 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 no. i know what you're saying though i mean what you mean is like wow it seems it goes over in like 25 minutes or a half yeah, an hour or yeah. something right yeah and that definitely doesn't happen so much with me anymore like even if i have a little bit of nerves like the 92nd street y concert where i played pat's piece for the first time i mean i've been doing this for 30 years now and so i think the past 10 i would say i'm pretty much inside of the the music right unless i'm really tired from some unforeseen circumstance like i you know like bad travel or something like that bad travel schedule or just you know or too many gigs in a row or something but most the vast majority of the time like i'm pretty like it feels about as long as it is actually nice I, I, I'm very much, but that's the zone I really want to be in. That's when it's really working right. And most of the time it, it feels like that. It, I, I, think if, I think when it's right, it should feel like the length that it is and that you're just a listener. You're just one of the listeners like the audience is, except that you're doing, you're doing more than just listening. Of course, you're directing. There's this nice zone where you're kind of, you're also just there. Like it's yeah. great. Yeah, that, that's a good place to be. An early teacher of mine said, "They cry, you don't." In regards to the audience, yep. Um, and and I've and I can experience music as a um, as a listener, and it's and it can move me incredibly emotionally. That's why that's, we do it. That's from a, the the first memory I have is that. But as yeah. a conduct, as a as a kind of an overseer of the proceedings, um, it's very difficult to get into that listener. Uh, mode, you know, because you're you're responsible for so much, and you're responsible for the experience of the musicians, and then the audience, and um, yeah, I find that maybe I'll get there someday. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a nice, it is definitely a nice place to be, and I and I I'm happy that as I get older, I I'm it's it's much easier to get in that even with nerves, I'm it's much easier to just kind of feel like I'm inside of what I'm doing. Yeah. It's, it is harder with nerves because when you're nervous, you're often nervous about yeah. extraneous things that don't even have to do with music. Like, yeah, yeah. Like it's, yeah. like it's hard, you know, it's still sometimes it's harder for me to play, say, a solo recital for a guitar society than it is for like a general classical yeah. music series or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like they know every piece. They know yeah. the, like yeah. like half yeah. the audience has studied like a lot of the pieces yeah. or practiced them and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit, you know, that you kind of even like if you kind of like through your peripheral, you're looking out there and like you know the the ones there's the guitars sitting in the front and they're like this, you know, like hmm. yeah, 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 <laughs> the, yeah, the chin scratchers we call right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We have um. There was a there was a notorious critic that would come to concerts, score in hand, like up up in his face, you know, <laughs> sitting in the front row, <laughs> man, making rough. sure making sure every note is being played. <laughs> ah, 
that's rough because that's like an exam. Yeah, it's like, is this person like examining yeah, yeah. me? Yeah, 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 my jury or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I think that um, people are really going to, they're, they're not going to find much to complain about in your newest uh, recording of Bach Volume 2. I mean, this I was listening to this um, over the past couple of weeks, and it truly just transports you um, to another oh, world, as you talked about at the beginning of, of, of our discussion. Um, and, and Jason, it's been such a, an honor and a pleasure to have you on, on One Symphony. And I hope everybody can check this out. It's uh, Bach Volume 2, The Violin Works by Jason Vio, wherever you listen to your music. And of course, if you want to learn more about Jason, you can go to jasonvio.com. Uh, and, and you can study with Jason, you can learn more about his, uh, compositions and everything about his upcoming performances. Thank you so much, Jason, for joining me on one symphony today. I appreciate it, Devin. I hope we get to know, can work together soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you for joining us to kick off our third season on one symphony. Thanks to Jason Vio for sharing his music and wealth of knowledge. The albums you heard today include Jason Vio's J.S. Bach Violin Works, Volume 2, arranged for guitar on Azica Records. You also heard the Laureate series, Guitar Recital by Jason Vio on Naxos, and you heard Pat Matheny's Road to the Sun by Matheny Group Productions and BMG Rights Management. You can check out Jason's music wherever you listen to your music and online at jasonvio.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Thank you to new supporters Rusty, Catherine, Julia, and Arnett for making this episode possible. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music.